Hello, welcome to Empty Plates, a podcast by Bear Kitchen. Empty Plates is a podcast about food and memory. I'm your host, founder of Bear Kitchen, Anjali VS, and I believe that every plate tells a story. Today, I will be talking to Jess Latchford. Jess is the founder of Waste Not, an organisation that is on a mission to tackle food waste by rescuing surplus food from a farmer's field and putting it to use in a chef's kitchen. Jess has been involved in the fresh produce industry for over a decade now, and as well as waging a huge war on waste, she's also ensuring farmers are paid and receive commercial value for their incredible produce. Now, I'm really excited to be talking to Jess and diving into a world of waste. Hey, Jess, how are you today? And tell us more about your amazing work. Hi. Uh, yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Very kind introduction from you. So we, as you said, rescue surplus and misshapen fresh produce. And we make sure the farmer receives the commercial value for it that they otherwise would receive for their class one produce. We supply caterers, charities, and the wider hospitality industry obviously now things have taken a bit of a turn towards more for the charity sectors rather than hospitality and catering and we're just really happy that we've been able to help both sides agriculture industry and the charities just team team them up together to make sure that people who are in need of the produce are receiving it and the farmers who are in need of selling the produce can do so so we've been doing that for the past six months while manoeuvring the pandemic so that's been an interesting curveball for us and presently we're doing more of the same really just waiting for see what happens with the caterers to see as and when they start coming back but at the same time there's still the produce that's been planned years in advance which is still being grown and thankfully harvested and we're managing to give it a new purpose and a new home. In terms of the new purpose of the new homes right now, I remember speaking several months ago and we talked about sort of exactly the charity being a really important part of, you know, supporting people who don't have access to food right now, but also, dare I use the words of my mother, charity also begins at home and we've got to look after the people that produce the food because they also need to eat. So, in terms of because you're a lot of your clients that you have right now aren't up and running at full capacity yet because their sites aren't open what's your current mechanism since you know we've got a bit more freedom in the way that we're moving in the last few months i mean at the moment we are purely focused on making sure that we're getting the produce to wherever it can be used the charities have been operating on an unprecedented level of operations and being able to link the two has given more of a deeper purpose I think to what we do and I think going forward it's going to be something that we're focusing on even more to make those connections and what you said about charity beginning at home we I mean these are these are our people and I think from a a purely kind of socio-economic point of view that we've all had a mirror held up to throughout the past few months it's that we realize that we all need to help each other as much as we can we are 
we are one, we're all humans, no matter status or class or anything to do with anything else apart from the basic fact that we are all human, we all need to eat. And at the same time, to keep the farms going by doing this is another level of, of helping. And I think the driver for Waste Not was always to be able to do good and help, albeit from a commercial point of view, because ultimately we really promote businesses that do good. So in a world where money makes the world go round, we don't necessarily buy into it solely money that makes the world go round. It's helping people, it's doing good, it's acting sustainably, acting responsibly, in a whole manner of ways. And I think that these last six months have really shown us certainly, and I'd like to think the wider world and especially the big businesses of the world that you can do both. It just takes a bit of maneuvering in terms of mentality and shifting of the goalposts a bit. Yeah, I think it's really powerful what you speak to, which is even if you're not a community centric person or you don't naturally imbibe to altruistic values, you have to now because you need help. We're all dealing with physical, mental, emotional well-being issues that are so, so common to some, so, so foreign to others because, you know, they don't come into our day-to-day lives. So I feel like, you know, being able to come together and offer something and offer community and it's a huge sense of comfort. And especially with uh, waste surplus that we've seen right now, I've seen surplus food being used in so many different ways and I do a lot of volunteering or I, at least I tried to since I've been back in London and what I've been noticing more is there's been a lot more cooking on site and I think you and I had spoken about this a few months ago that and I found this quite fascinating that a lot of surplus food that comes into assisted living or care homes etc was usually pre-packaged quite healthy food but packaged And now we've seen, you know, in the last six months, DEFRA get involved in food redistribution and they're becoming more equal access and, you know, more impact. But people who need access to food are actually cooking food on site. They're able to maybe not participate, but... Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, food is a leveller. We all know this, you know, everyone has to eat. It unites everyone. And whether you're eating on your own or you've got, 15 members in your family that you regularly eat with it certainly acts as a binding agent for social good and I think this is where we as a society have really missed the opportunity when the the pubs and the restaurants and the cafes all had to close having those hubs of where we could go and know that you can go and order something that you know you're going to enjoy, you can sit, you can talk, converse, and knowing that people have put love and care into producing this food for you. Equally, on the flip side, now that, because that happened, and a lot of us have been forced to cook at home, I think it's given yet another level to the importance of food and again binding us together and I think that when this all kicks off you know that the number of people that 
I heard of getting into cooking sourdoughs and you know getting into preserving and because it is therapy you know it really helps us to come together to produce something tangible and make a day productive and I think a lot of people struggled throughout the time of lockdown when the level of productivity be it from going into work and having a solid business meeting or being at home and working for yourself or taking your children to school and cleaning your house whatever your level of productivity was what just wasn't happening and I think it gave people a real focus and I think with the produce that we were diverting because it is in a very raw natural state it takes work it's not pre-packed it's not washed it's not chopped it's proper fruit and veg in its raw state recently harvested and it needs work so you give the time and energy to this food as you may do a relative or a child or an animal or something like that and you work alongside it to produce something you know it's almost like you care for it and you produce something that will nourish somebody else and I think within the community centers and the night shelters and, and everything else that goes into the charities that we supply it gave people such a purpose and it really made a lot of people from this humble items going into somewhere it ripples the effects ripple of the benefits that it brings and I think with what we do at Waste Not there's it sparks so many conversations and it's got a lot of fingers coming out of it that are all different points of importance for being a human that we can all relate to and I mean from the nature side of it well-being the mental well-being sides of it everything that we do we try to encompass all the good you know and we try to talk about the the valuing of it just because it doesn't have a commercial value yet it doesn't mean that it's any less valuable and we try to then talk about that being reflective of people as well so just to value worth as not necessarily something that's predestined to to be able to maneuver that as well into something that you foresee not that somebody else gives you value as something that you foresee and not something that someone gives you and our perception of value is it when it comes to food is completely different for everyone because it's our own experience so that leads me into your uh, first plate of food which is starting from your childhood tell us more about this first plate that sort of shaped your childhood well my earliest memory of food which I put a lot of meaning onto and I don't know if it's meaning I think it's more prominence as a memory is my mum and I used to go every weekend to the fishmonger and buy a massive bag of shell on prawns and then spend the rest of the afternoon shelling them with loads of Mary Rose sauce and it was just that well obviously a I love prawns but b it was kind of that really focused time where nothing else came into it so I think with shelling prawns again it's quite therapeutic like you know you have and you also you have to work to get them 
you know, I always mm -hmm. think this about shellfish, you know, especially crabs actually, but any shellfish really, where you have to work to get it, it makes it so much more worthwhile. And I think that's kind of reflective of anything in life, you know, the more you have to work at it when it comes to fruition, the more worthwhile it is. We'd spend a good while getting through these prawns and we, we had a house full of cats as well. So they got fairly well fed at the same time, but it was a really, really lovely thing to do. And I think it's just embedding those sort of, because it's not only would we sit there and eat prawns, we'd also talk. Wow. You know, I have a similar memory of like buying chilies with my father from when I was five years old and not really eating them that much, but understanding the, the labour that goes into selecting chilies to ensure that when you did make the curry, it was going to be fantastic. It's interesting how you talk about labour being a really important part of your childhood and understanding the fruits of labour. And here you are now, many years later, working with a similar mindset of working with farmers and understanding the fruits of their labour, but ensuring that that value, again, going back to what you said, that value and that perceived value is seen and heard and anchored. Because I think a lot of those times, these are, it's the small moments of our childhood that really shape how we look at things. Just going from that plate to your second plate, because I think it folds in really lovely, is, you know, you talked about shelling prawns with your mum, but you're also a mother. You have two daughters. How old are your daughters? They're four and seven. Four and seven. Yeah. Similar ages to the first memory that you just described. I always, I'm always fascinated with, you know, I, have, I come from a family full of women, peppered with a couple of guys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm always fascinated by how your eating habits change when you go from self-sustenance to sustaining the lives of a child growing inside of you and then to you know living breathing creatures around you and you know you the way that you perceive food as sustaining yourself and then having to sustain a world around you tell me about that how has that journey been for you yeah i mean it definitely makes you look at food differently i mean I was you know, very fortunate. I was brought up, we grew our own vegetables. We were always taught the importance of healthy eating. So I think when pregnant, you don't, there wasn't a massive shift to being like, oh, I've really got to look after myself now, which I think some people go through. But I think once you then relinquish the control, I mean, you don't ever relinquish control, but I think once you then have a baby to feed and you were in control of what is building them up essentially then it does take on a new momentum however I think part of the joy and tribulation of parenthood is to really realize that you're not really in control they're in control so for example my first daughter she was fairly easygoing she'd have some purees she, you know have that have a bit of this try a bit of this my second, not in any way interested in any puree at all. Not a chance. So she was straight onto the hard stuff. Um, <laughs> she, so to speak, she would just devour anything that we ate. And I think that's kind of shaped their onward habits. Because I think with your first, you're kind of very... Like, oh well she's a baby she should be having purees so and you're sort of guided by 
what's right in inverted commas. However, looking back, I probably, if I'd been doing it again, I probably wouldn't have bothered with purees or anything. I would have just gone straight onto the hard stuff with her as well. The difference was my first was bottle fed because she had a small cleft palate and she needed purees quite early on or she needed sort of substance quite early on. Whereas my second, she was breastfed until she was 22 months. So the, as it usually follows, those that are breastfed kind of go straight onto hard food straight away, bypassing purees rather with bottle fed, they have that sort of buffer zone of purees. But I'd say going forward, it has kind of, it did shape how experimental they both were. And I think what really made the difference was when they both started eating at nursery, like preschool, because they'd all be in together and they'd all be given really, really lovely, nutritious food. And because children are very receptive to what their peers are doing, they just eat whatever they were given. And then at home, I'd find they were a bit more fussy, even if it was exactly the same thing. So that's children. So I think as they've got older, I mean, especially my seven-year-old, her favorite thing now is lobster, right? And I'm not ashamed to say it because it's been a journey to get there, but she loves lobster. So I'm just going with it. And I'm like, well, obviously that is a very special treat and you know that and she does know that, thankfully. But yesterday we had a barbecue and, you know, she was having uh, steak and like rare steak and, you know, we sort of make everything available to her that we're having and never force anything. I think with children, it's one of those things that you can't ever force them to, to have anything because you really do then risk going the other way. They are individuals in their own right and they will always have their own opinions. Always, always have their own opinions, <laughs> especially mine. <laughs> it's funny actually, because you've talked about growing up as child peeling prawns with your mum. And now your seven-year-old daughter's into lobster, which I think is quite cool. But again, understanding fruits of labour. But then you mentioned your second plate of food. That's quite an interesting one. Will you just tell me about that? The first plate of food you had was fish and chips after the birth of both of your daughters. Yeah. Do you know, it was just one of those things that was, I needed, it was fish and chips straight after the birth of both of my daughters. And Straight after, how how quickly? What was the timing? I mean, pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm so, so hungry, I need to eat. But it was just one of those things that I think takes you back to safe. And as I just said, beige food, right? Beige food, safe, dodge. You know, just one of those feelings that what you know what you're going to get. And I think that was the main thing, like having children there's quite a lot of unknowing I mean the actual kind of birth process you know there's there's quite a lot of unknowingness around the whole thing so I think then to have that sort of very stalwart strength of a plate of fish and chips that you know you're going to enjoy you know is going to be good it's going to fill you up it's going to give you some sort of you know sustenance and that is what you need at that time. And I just think with food, you have to go by how, what your body is telling you. I think that's really important. I mean, I think with people that don't necessarily have the, make a lot of the right choices when it comes to food, it is an education thing, but it's also about the body having gotten used to sort of the wrong things and doing a reversal on that is hard. 
but I think that balance of knowing that you need the good stuff to make you feel good but at the same time you do need to follow what your body's telling you as well and I was having a conversation yesterday about somebody who suffers with IBS really badly and she was saying that all the diet pros say you know high fiber rich in fruit and veg you know and she said whenever I do that it just triggers everything in my IBS and I was like well what makes you feel good and she said well you know if I have white bread with eggs for example it sorts me out if I just have eggs I'm a mess but I said well you've got to go by what your body's telling you you can't have a one size fits all as to what's good for your body you have to listen to what your body's telling you so I think with the fish and chips straight after the birth, it was, I was definitely listening to what my body was telling me and it was telling me, get some stodge. I don't have any children, but I understand the uncertainty that happens when you're bringing a new life into this world. And I have got some, a couple of my friends actually went through severe uh, postpartum depression. And even if they'd already had a couple of children, there was something about having an, a child that triggered triggered the sense deep sense of uncertainty that they weren't able to quite figure out themselves and it was it was quite an out-of-body experience for them and I remember being there to support uh, a couple of these people during this time and you know it was about again finding the certainty in what is and evoking those memories of different things that make you feel safe and food was a really big part of that journey so exactly how you mentioned like you know you know you're going to get this you know you know no matter how uncertain the road is ahead yeah you know with certain things you know you could have had a really healthy salad that's fine but that it doesn't bring the same level of comfort to you uh <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no and i get it completely there's nothing quite like a, a plate of fish and chips there's with, not there's not i'm a very salty person i'm like too much salt too much vinegar oh yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, all, all the salt. <laughs> We've talked about your children eating eating quite openly and everything that you said is that they eat quite healthy naturally because they have the freedom of choice. And I think usually when you take the choice away, we all, even as adults, we veer in the other direction. Will they eat fish and chips? Do they have junk food? Like, what's that relationship for them? So if we go out to eat, it's fascinating that a lot of menus are very for children they're very mm, focused to burgers fish and chips most of them have a pasta dish on now but it is all kind of quite geared towards children which you know if I wasn't a parent probably I'd be looking at it and going god can't they be a bit more imaginative can't they offer them you know something else that's a bit different but actually you know with children you as we were just saying with what makes you've just got to go with what works you know and I think as parents if you take your children out to eat you, everyone wants to have a good time and if by them having a plate of sausage and chips is what's gonna make the whole experience more pleasurable than if you give them you know a few oysters and some goat's cheese on bruschetta then you know we're gonna we're gonna go with that so I think there's a bit of snobbery around children going out to eat and what they should and shouldn't have and whatever else but ultimately whatever is going to make them happy whatever's going to make the experience 
pleasurable and as a treat yeah you know they they'll they'll go out and have chips and and whatever else i know that i give them a good balanced diet i know they have a good balanced diet at school so that's one of those things that we let go i mean you know for us they don't know what mcdonald's is for example and that's something we don't necessarily want them to but that's our choice and i am in no means judging people that take their children to mcdonald's like that's a choice and that's totally fine i'm sure we do things or my children know about something that other people would look at and say oh gosh that's not really on is it but it's all about parenting and making the right choices that you feel for your children and nobody's right 100% of the time so as we were saying at the beginning of the conversation everyone is human ultimately but everyone has different priorities different focus different ways and means of living and I think somebody's standard of something is not necessarily the right way if it differs from another person's i think it's just really important that we all appreciate that we're all trying to do the best basically especially as parents you know there is no rule book unfortunately and i think if we try and act by a one-size-fits-all method it's not going to work and i think this is part of what I did with waste not was kind of I challenged the norm because I know that one size definitely doesn't fit all in terms of surplus and misshapen produce when it comes down to valuing what's good and what's bad there isn't a right or wrong it's just different you know and our our values of how we raise children and how we value a bit of a you know a knobbly carrot like that's all different to us and we're all human and we've all got different levels of perceptions and you know that all feeds back to really our childhood and and how we are raised and the values we're given and how we are shaped really and how we see things that is so beautiful i just <laughs> really beautiful it's and it's so true. Again, we go back to this idea of value that you started to talk about at the start of the conversation. And, you know, you just made me think about if everything in our life is based on our perception, our value, but we're, we're told that perfection, same as a wonky carrot, comes, you know, we're told a, a wonky carrot and a straight carrot, you know, they're different. And that's how we see ourselves, see our bodies. And Again, as a parent, then you're saying, well, am I doing it this way or that way? It is about perception, but it's also about, you know, one size doesn't fit all. And there are many different lengths and breadths and ways and shapes and colors for everyone. I just, I wonder though, the way that you're able to connect these two worlds is phenomenal. And I, and I can see how everything, as it does, life just influences each other. All of the threads of life, they're all connected at one, at one point. Do your children know, do your girls know what you do? Do they, what do they think about it? The oldest, so Tilly knows, she puts it in the shape of mummy rescues bad apples. She said to somebody the other day, mummy rescues bad apples or something like that. And I said, well, they're not bad. They just don't have a home. So I put, I give them a new home. She's like, oh, okay. Anyway, 
she kind of gets what I do. She's always asking to come to the farms with me, which I love and I would love to take her, but I'm not sure practically how that would work. <laughs> so she does know what I do. The four-year-old, not so much, but honestly, they are such different personalities. The older one is very, it, <laughs> she's sort of outwardly interested in what other people do, other people's feelings. She's very aware of other people's emotions. The younger one, and it's not just because she's younger, she, I imagine, is just going to be like this. This is her. She's very much head forth, strong-willed, looks after herself. <laughs> if she's good, the rest of the world's good, you know? It's like, it's like, well, I don't really care what you do because I'm quite happy right now. So you crack on. I'm not interested. And yeah, as and when you've got some dinner for me, just let me know. <laughs> Give me a shout. But um yeah, they're polar opposites in terms of the wider world and how they approach things, which is fascinating. They've both been raised in exactly the same way but they are polar opposites in terms of personality. So yeah, I don't think the younger one's actually interested in what I do. <laughs> well, it's interesting to learn because I think in the last few months as well, again, we, everything is sort of in this sphere of COVID right now, but you know, people have been growing vegetables at home, doing anything to find small patches. And even, even if people have been living in apartments, they've got window boxes, or you know, the, everybody in the building has come together to set up a little patch. And children are so much, I, I've noticed that you know, children, they don't really think that anything's a problem. That idea of a problem is in our brain that you know, they struggle with things. So when you're giving them a challenge of growing something, it's just phenomenal to see how they are like, they see it growing, they interact with it. And I just really hope that you know, now going forward, this generation, specifically pertaining to this time, have, you know, have, they have now that lived experience of what growing feels like. I don't really think I had that in my childhood, but, you know, because I, my parents grew up in Africa, then I, when they came here, it wasn't really a, a thing that they did here. But I think there's hope in the future where kids are sort of like, no, we've just, you know, we've got our veg boxes and we grow and we've got our little allotment. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like I said before, I was lucky to go. I grew up on a farm and we grew loads and loads of produce, not commercially, but, and it wasn't a commercial farm, but we had the space to do so. And equally, you know, we're sort of North Surrey, but we grow quite a lot at home and the girls go out and pick the stuff and it's really lovely for them to do that. So that is something that they've always grown up with as well. And equally from a protein point of view, my husband shoots. So he brings home deer that have needed culling and you know he'll come home and whack out the carcass on the worktop in the kitchen and the girls won't even blink now oh, wow. they'll just completely you know they'll help him carve it into various cuts and they know where meat comes from now because I think with fruit and veg it's it's one story and it's quite a wide open conversation whereas the whole meat's conversation is a bit more not frowned upon but it's not as just because of the nature of it it's not spoken about as much as I think it should be so they are very much aware of where meat comes from how it gets to our plate and everything surrounding that as well so I'm really pleased that they get that as well 
you know they're getting both sides of it and they don't blink at what he does at all I do a little bit but they don't I'm like right can you please make sure you clean up properly <laughs> but you know and and they go out fishing with him as well so they'll go and catch mackerel and cook it on the barbecue for example so they know that they'll go out catch a fish that's alive and the whole process of eating to sustain yourself you know I appreciate that some people don't believe that we need meat or fish and that's totally fine again everyone's open to their own opinion but for my children who do eat fish and meat I want them to know where it comes from and how it gets to their plates yeah well I think that's a really important point actually because I was always mainly vegetarian but my reason for not being able to eat meat that I have like spiritual reasons and religious reasons of my own but I you know I tried to go out fishing and I you know I, I tried but I always thought to myself unless I'm able to kill the animal then I don't really have a right to eat it in a packaged product and I've tried to do that but I just don't have that in me and I think that's what forms my ability to go well actually no I'm, I'm unable to do it so it's unfair for me to just to have a packaged product in a supermarket in the sort of Package to perfection, as it were. Mm-hmm. That's the end part of the, the supply chain. It's really important to understand all the threads along the way. So I think your kid being raised with that, I think it's really important. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, but I mean, good on you for making that call because I mean, the majority, I would say, are people that would not and could not kill something but are still prepared to eat it. But because they don't see the chain along the way, there's no transparency as to how that process process happens and I think if a lot if a lot of people knew that process then I think things would be a lot different this is true but this is where you come in this is your phenomenal work coming in (laughs) so let's move on to your third plate there's a lot of joy in this plate it just seems like joy 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 and I've seen the way you've written it to me in like capitals and smiley faces so just tell me about this I've always felt an affinity with the southern US states. I don't know why. I don't know if I was like raised and born there in a previous life, but (laughs) I really feel like if I didn't live here, I'd live there. And the food has got a lot to do with it. But we were lucky enough to go to one of our, well, two of our good friends' wedding in 2011 to the most amazing place called Folly Beach in South Carolina near Charleston and it oh my goodness like literally just thinking about it like I just get so happy the best holiday ever 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 so we got to explore so we were in these big houses on the beach and weddings on the beach and the whole thing surrounding we were there for a week so it was it wasn't just the wedding it was no 10 days actually we were meant to go to New York and we changed our plans to stay there so we were there for 10 days and it was just just phenomenal the the vibe that was there and there's no cars around so you you go onto Folly Beach over a bridge and then you get up and it's golf carts so it's just golf carts everywhere on this kind of little island and there's like one store and a shack that sells crab and then there's oh it's just amazing and then so I think I can't remember if it was the night it wasn't the night before the wedding yeah I don't really remember that night but there was a night and we went to this amazing um I mean a restaurant but a very laid-back restaurant 
and we just had plates full of crab and the biggest crab legs I've ever seen in my life and just full of grits and just everything that and brisket everything that embodies southern American cuisine and I was just in heaven I mean I was literally like I have reached my peak like it just I just can't get this right now. This is sprawled out in front of me. And I just think that with everything that was going on, you know, we were there to celebrate a wedding. Everyone that was there was really close. Everyone kind of had that same, because they're GB beach volleyball players. So everyone is just like chilled out to the max, like just the most relaxed kind of people. And it was just so amazing, the whole vibe of the place. Charleston in itself is incredible. And I just think that that meal encapsulated the whole 10 days. And yeah, it was phenomenal and I'll I'll never forget it. Well, it's interesting because you, you refer to it as your spiritual home. And if I think back over your your plates of food and even just knowing you and the work that you do, there's a sense of high level enjoyment in what nature has given you, but also there's always a level of effort in how that enjoyment happens. So whether it's like growing up on a farm or you know, harvesting your own veg at home, working with farmers, ensuring that you know, farmers get paid correctly, but going back to your first plate, you're talking about you know, shelling prawns with your mum on a Saturday and having, lots of, with, and having it with Mary Rose sauce. I feel like there is this, idea of like nature gives me so much abundance I've got to work really bloody hard for it (laughs) you know so you've come to this trip and you've managed to you've got to this beautiful wedding you're like wedding love romance piles of delicious food oh my god I'm in my yeah yeah Yeah. loving life to the max (laughs) no that's beautiful it's it's a simplicity yeah and this is the thing with food like I've been really lucky that I have been given the opportunity to eat in some amazing restaurants like you know you know the type like (laughs) so you know like pretty special places but I would never ever in a million years choose to go to one of those places over any of the dishes that I've said are my favorite plates not even the prawns not even the little prawns with my mum like I just think there's so much more to food than what is put down in front of you and I think that the whole thing with the Michelin star restaurants and again you know we come back to value and worth and I I don't know if it's me like I don't know if it's because I've got to the ripe old age of 37 and like really just knowing what I value above other stuff and what actually society tells me I should value more isn't what I value more I don't know if I hadn't had those experiences of being lucky enough to go to eat some really nice restaurants whether my perception would be any different you know we don't live a parallel life so I can't judge that But what I do know is I have had those experiences and I wouldn't choose that over any of those favourite dishes, for sure. And every time you speak, I'm just blown away. (laughs) Because I think 
the work that you do, Jess, is so, it, you're so connected to nature. And I think growing up on a farm has connected you with a process of seeing something grow. And when we can see something grow in front of us, apart from seeing ourselves grow in front of a mirror or grow in the eyes of other people and their expectation, I think it builds a different sensory experience. And that is, I think your whole, every experience that you've mentioned to me, your work that you do is sort of tempered with that understanding. And I don't think I could have said the words better myself, actually, is that, you know, the satiation and the satisfaction of, and of that feeling, yeah, no Michelin restaurant can actually give you, because you have to walk out of that restaurant at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you've also parted with quite a lot of money and you're like oh yeah okay. yeah I think also it probably that you know unless you've got bottomless buckets of cash that giving over of paying for an experience so somebody else has put a monetary value on that experience and I think also you you're, you feel under pressure to be enjoying it because you are putting so much of your tangible cash across to something that you aren't necessarily given any deciding factor as to how much you value it and then you look at everything surrounding it as to what goes into making up value so you know it is it money? Is it conversation? Is it environment? Is it, you know, and I think depending on how you're built, all those different things will take up different amounts of how you value worth. And I think by going to a restaurant that you, and don't get me wrong, I think that Michelin star restaurants definitely have their place and I hope to go to one again soon but I think that at the moment especially with how over the last six months we haven't necessarily had that option of going to a Michelin star restaurant I know that a few are open now but I think that it's given us the opportunity to kind of step back and a lot of things with this pandemic has allowed us to step back and reevaluate what we value so my husband and I for example we we're really picky about where we go now because we enjoy cooking at home and getting really good produce and doing it ourselves and more often than not the experience of what you get from going out doesn't match that so I think it's very much a, what goes into building what you value and then looking at it from a a different point of view as to am I deciding the value or is somebody else deciding the value am I happy with that am I not happy with that if you're happy with it go for it you know fully boots it's one of those things it's an industry and it will always be there because there will always be a market for it but that makes up our rich culture which I love and which I would never want an integral part of it not being there but I think in terms of what I'm going off on tangents here but you know working with chefs who they do what they do, but they also add value within their menu. So we work closely with Phil Howard and his food is so deeply thought about. And that for me gives value. The fact that I know that he really thinks about where he gets his food from, 
the people behind the food. So when we first started, he put a whole menu on at Church Road just with our produce. So he had a starter, a main and a dessert just using our produce. And the profits from that went to a charity in Barnes. So that all feeds back into what we're doing from a charitable point of view within Waste Not, but also outside of Waste Not, people are feeding into that altruistic benefits of using our produce. So it's not a blanket outright, you know, Michelin star food and chefs that charge a fortune for their food and everything. You question the value of it, depending on where your compass lies. I think that there's so much to look into chefs who really prioritize and know and value where their food's coming from, what they can do to produce these amazing plates, but at the same time, and we're going back to what I said at the beginning, doing good business. So you're creating a business that you've always wanted to create, creating amazing food, but at the same time, you're doing it in a good way and you're supporting producers and suppliers who need your support, who are going to go on to continue to give you the food that you want to be giving your customers, but at the same time with a real feel good factor to it as well. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jess. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. It's been a really, really heartfelt and mindful discussion about motherhood, value, and joy in the little things actually. So mm. it's so lovely to speak to you and I'm in awe of all the work that you do. Oh, thank you. So please continue to do that and <laughs> spread the value, the real yes. value. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much and um, I will speak to you soon. All right, thanks. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe. And why not follow Bear Kitchen on Instagram?